God is good. Life is hard. Don't try to reconcile the two. Hey, God is good. Life is hard. Don't try to reconcile the two. That's a, a statement I came across this week as I was researching for my talk this morning. And as I first read through it, I kind of went, wow, somebody paid you to write that? Like, that's all you've got. That's the best you can do. Someone comes up to you and says, if, if God is all powerful, God is ultimate, and God is all loving and all good, then why is there evil in the, word, in the world? Right, if, if God is so good, then why do bad things happen? And the best you can come up with is, God is good, life is hard. Don't try to reconcile the two. I kind of was sitting there going like, it's basically just saying like, oh, don't, don't think too hard about that question. But the more I sat with it, the more I explored some of that idea, I realized there might actually be a, a little bit more depth to that answer than I originally thought. And so today I want to challenge the oftentimes shallow theology of suffering that we have. Theology comes from two root words, theos, meaning God, ology, meaning to study. And so when I say the theology of suffering, I mean in light of who God is, of who God has declared himself to be in his word, who God is revealing himself to be, in light of who God is, how do we process pain and suffering in our lives? Right, and, and how does that shape how we respond to the pain and suffering of those that are around us? If we're content with a, a shallow theology of suffering, we can be buffeted by the trials and the difficulties of our lives. But when we develop a greater theology of suffering, when we have a, a deeper understanding of life, then we're not only able to stand firm in our faith when trials do come and when difficulty does come, we're actually better able to encourage and walk alongside others as they're suffering. And so this morning, we're going to spend some time unpacking this idea of when life goes wrong, we know that God is still working good for us. If this is your first time with us today, or if you've missed out on the last couple of weeks of our, our series, we're currently in a series called Misquoted. God never said that. And over this series, we're taking an overview of the Bible. We're going through a number of passages that are often misquoted, misinterpreted, or twisted to mean something that they don't mean. And one of the, the biggest mistakes we make when we're reading the Bible is to read paragraphs or verses in isolation, right? And certain devotional books, and I have plenty on my shelf, uh, they take a single verse or a single paragraph and they expand on that as the devotional. And we read kind of bits and pieces all over the Bible, but it's not, the, it's not the way the original authors intended us to read the Bible, right? The books of the Bible are meant to be read like books. If you take a, a random verse out of 2 Kings or Romans or Revelation uh, and just read one verse, it's kind of like turning to page 45 of a random book on your shelf, reading it and going, cool, now I know what this book's about. I did that this week, grabbed one of the books sitting on my desk, flipped open to page 45 and read the line, because a development phase can cover an extensive period of time, it's helpful to use subphases, which can show step-by-step -step development. It's a really engaging read. <laughs> but do you know anything about the book I'm reading? Or what phases we're talking about? Do we know what's being developed? Even if you know the book that I'm reading, uh, that single out-of-context line is not really helpful to getting the whole idea of the book, the whole idea of that section. It wouldn't be very helpful to you. That's why we need to look at the bigger context of the passages that we read. And so today I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter eight. We'll be spending most of our time in Romans this morning. 
Uh, so Romans 8, 28 is the verse we'll focus on. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That's kind of the, the misquote we'll be paying attention to this, this morning. And, and Romans 8, 28 is a verse that when taken in a certain context can become vapid, it can become trite. We can rattle it off as if it fixes everything when we're facing a problem. And we have statements that maybe aren't exactly this verse, but are similar, you know, um, you know everything happens for a reason. Uh, you know, God's, God's got a plan. God's working this for good. God's gonna redeem this situation in some way. And often when we're in a moment of pain, when we're in a moment of, of suffering, this verse or this idea gives us the one thing that we really want. It gives us just a little bit of control. Right? They give us an, an ounce of control. They allow us to point towards something outside of us, to something outside of our situation, outside of our pain, outside of our suffering. And we get to use that as a little bit of an anchor in those tough times. When our life has gone wrong, we can point towards God and say, oh, he's making it good. God's working it for good. Because if God is working it for good, then we feel like we have a little bit more control. But the reality of this verse is that it's not what it's here for. Right? It absolutely can be a comfort. We can absolutely take encouragement out of this verse, but it's, it's not a trite moment. And when we use it in that way, it kind of just proves that we have a really shallow understanding and a shallow theology of suffering. And the difficulty with this application of the text that God's working it for good is that we, especially in a, a Western and a North American context, we often interpret that in a very materialistic, very individualistic, and a, a narrow perspective. But when we actually look at good, we have to look at it from God's perspective. And from God's perspective, good has to be defined in spiritual terms. We've spoken a few times over the series about the prosperity gospel. I think Aaron Richard a few weeks ago called it the, the health and wealth gospel. This idea that God wants you to be healthy. God wants you to be wealthy. God wants you to live your best life. And even if we can acknowledge, oh yeah, you know, that's not what God wants for me. We, we often still struggle to say, oh yeah, it's fine. Right? We, we say it's, uh, it's okay if we struggle with our health. It's okay if we struggle with our finances. But God, maybe I don't have to be wealthy. And maybe I don't have to look like Chris Evans and Chris Hemsworth. But maybe I could be physically fit, have no chronic health conditions. And, and maybe I could be firmly middle class. Maybe no debts, right? Maybe, maybe then it'd be good enough. But as I'm sure everyone in this room knows, there is suffering in our lives. Many of us have spent this past year suffering. At best, you weren't able to see friends, family. You may have felt isolated. Others in this room dealt with job loss, dealt with cutbacks, being laid off temporarily, permanently. Many of you know people that got sick, people who were hospitalized. You may have had friends and family members who passed away. And it can be really hard to see the good in those moments. And if we look out outside of the COVID lens, we still suffer, right? We, we still deal with things going wrong. We know, we know what it's like to lose a family member unexpectedly. We have to deal with a chronic illness. We have to deal with a cancer diagnosis. You finally get some savings and then your car breaks down and you go, man, how am I going to pay for this? And if I pay for the car, how am I going to get groceries next week? 
your spouse loses their job, your shoulder injury starts acting up again, and the demand for mental health services is so high, you wonder, can I get in to see a counselor? And even if I can, can I afford it? And it makes you want to scream at the sky, God, what are you doing? What good is coming out of this situation? Where's the relief? Where's the lesson? Where's the good that I'm supposed to take away from this? What is, what is the point? I thought you were working all things for good in my life. And if you felt that way, you're not the first person to ask those questions. And you're not even the first person in the Bible to ask them. I'm sure many of you have heard, or many of you have uh, read the story of Joseph back in Genesis. He asked many of those same questions. The story of Joseph, made famous in the musical Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, or your Bibles. Uh, I was going to perform a quick medley from the play, just to get you guys caught up on the story, but my wife said, oh, David, they don't need to know that kind of pain and suffering, so we're going to skip that, but we'll look at the story of Joseph. We will look at the, the life of somebody who suffered immense pain and suffering at the hands of others, and how God responded to him by working it for good. This is going to be a, a quick overview of Genesis 37 to 50. So it's quite a few chapters. We're going to skim through a lot of the details of the story, but just to, to take a little bit of the context for that and apply it to our, our verse today. Uh, if you're wanting to go a little more in depth, I encourage you to read some of those stories yourself. But Joseph has 11 brothers. And he, he goes to them, he tells them of this dream he has where all the bundles of grain are bowing down to him. Uh, and then he, he has another dream and he tells his brothers, he's like, oh, I had this dream where the sun and the moon and 11 stars all bowed down to me and they worshiped me. And Joseph's brothers start getting riled up. They're like, that's not fair. Like, we don't want to worship our brother. What's this kid doing? And so later on, when Joseph goes out to visit them in the fields where they're keeping their flocks, they hatch a plan. They see him coming from ways off and they go, well, let's just kill him. That'll be easy. Right? They, they strip him of his coat. They beat him. They throw him into a well. It's a bad day. They come back later. They take him out of the well and they sell him into slavery. It's a bad day. And so Joseph goes off as captive and is taken by these slavers to Egypt and sold to one of Pharaoh's officials. Then we read in uh, Genesis 39, the Lord was with Joseph. He became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. Right, finally, things are turning around for Joseph. He's doing good work. The Lord is blessing him. And the whole household he work in, works in is being blessed it's fruitful, like, yes, Joseph, we're here, we're with you, we're excited, but it doesn't last. Potiphar's wife, the, the ruler that he's working for, takes a liking to Joseph, invites him to bed, and he refuses. And so she falsely accuses him of coming on to her. And with this, Joseph is sent off to prison. As Joseph's in prison, another bad day, he's shown favor from God. He begins to interpret the dreams of other prisoners. And down the road, one of these prisoners goes to the Pharaoh and the Pharaoh needs a dream interpreted. And he goes, oh, I know this guy from prison. And so Joseph comes out and he interprets this dream of the Pharaoh as Egypt having seven years of fruitful, great, bountiful harvest, and then seven years of famine. And so he advises the Pharaoh that over the next seven years, put aside some grain, put aside some resources so that we can make it through that lean time. 
And Pharaoh likes this idea so much, he makes Joseph second in command of all of Egypt. And years later, during that famine, Joseph's brothers come to Egypt in need of food. And there's some family drama we're skipping over for time today, but, but Joseph's able to provide for his family. Things seem good again. And at the end of Joseph's life, he's talking with his brothers, and he says this, this is Genesis 50, 20. As for you, talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And sound familiar? It's a very parallel idea to what we're talking about in, in Romans 8, 28. And when we look at Joseph's life in hindsight, as we look through this Genesis 50 lens and kind of look back over everything that's happened, it's easy to say God meant it for good. He wouldn't have been in Egypt if he hadn't been sold to slavery. That worked out. He wouldn't have interpreted dreams if he hadn't been sent to prison. So that worked out. He, he wouldn't have gone before Pharaoh if he hadn't been interpreting the dreams. He wouldn't have been able to save his family and give them food if he hadn't been made ruler over Egypt. But when we look during Joseph's life, it'd be really hard to see the good at any of those moments. He's beaten and thrown in a well, right? He's, he's uh, sold into slavery. He's sent to prison over false accusations. He's betrayed, beaten, and he's left alone in a foreign land. And as we go through hard times in our lives, and as we, it's important to remember that we, we don't know the end. We don't have that Genesis 50 lens. And like Joseph, we have to go like, I don't know where this is all going, but I hope that God works it for good. And at every low point in Joseph's life, he probably questioned why he was here. You know, looking back over his whole life, at the end, he can say, yeah, God meant it for good. All the pain and suffering turned into something good. When life goes wrong, God is still working good for us. So we've talked a little bit about this idea of, of good. We've talked through the story of Joseph. Let's go back to, to Romans and continue to explore this idea of good. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Let's add a little bit of context to that verse. We'll read Romans 8, 18, kind of the start of this section. For I consider that the present suffering of this time is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then we continue actually 28 into 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he, he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he glorified. This, this whole section of God working things for good is bookended. It's encapsulated in these two verses about glory. Right, if we take a step back and look at Romans as a whole, and this kind of subsection of Romans running from Romans 5 to the end of Romans 8, that whole section, the start idea of 5 and the ending of 8, kind of focuses on suffering and glory, and then chapter 8 as well, suffering and glory. God works all things for good, but that good doesn't refer to earthly comforts, but it refers to God's glory. It refers to us becoming more like Christ, right? God is not working things for our earthly and materialistic good, but for our ultimate spiritual good, for our formation into becoming people that are more and more like Jesus. 
right? God's picture of good is so much bigger than ours. It's bigger than our lives. It's bigger than our physical bodies. It's a bigger picture of an ultimate and eternal good. And when we skim over the keywords in some of these verses, we create a bit of a false idea of who God is, right? And the enemy can use these misconceptions as an opportunity to insert doubt, to vandalize our faith, right? When these narratives of, oh, is God good? Why am I suffering? When those become full-blown thinking patterns in our life, we can actually question God and his word. But when we focus on this verse and its context, when we focus on God working things for good in light of his glory, then we can actually live in the freedom of an ultimate good. So God is working things for good. He is working that we can be conformed into the image of Christ. He's working that we may be called into relationship with him, that we can be justified for our sins and that ultimately we can live in God's glory forever in new perfect bodies in a restored kingdom. Right, the, the ultimate glory for Christians is so stupendous that the sufferings of this present life seem insignificant. And so when we hold on to that promise, we can proudly say, or stand with Paul and say, that I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Right, we, we view suffering in this larger-than-life, world-transcending context, and that doesn't alleviate suffering. It doesn't make it easier to go through, but it transcends it with a confident expectation we have that suffering is not the final word in our lives. Right? In light of this ultimate good that God has for us, in light of that, we can stand up to any suffering because God's good transcends our suffering. Reflecting on these verses, pastor and author Tim Keller said this, Christians are not shocked by the tragedies and hardness of life. We don't expect things naturally to work for good. When something works out for good, it is all and only because of God's grace working for us, his children who love him. When something goes wrong, we still know with absolute certainty that God is working good for us. This means that we are positive about life, but we're not saccharine or unrealistic about it. Right? Paul, ever the realist, knows that our ultimate victory, that our ultimate good may lie years ahead. Years that can be filled with pain, distress, anxiety, and destruction. And so Paul leaves us with this encouragement to bear through those times. And as we begin to wrap up some of our time together, I want to leave you with two tips for suffering well, for enduring well as we go through whatever hardships are in our life. The first one, we live in the tension. Uh, I feel as though myself, other speakers in this series and before, we've used this phrase, uh, the already not yet. Right? The, the kingdom of God is already here and it's not yet here. This, this idea of ultimate good we're talking about is already here, but it's, it's not yet here. It's, it's partially fulfilled. Right? The end of suffering is, is already here, but it's, it's not yet here. Jesus has come and struck the death blow to death itself and pain itself, and we get to live in the space between that, that killing blow to death and the end of death itself. We live in the tension of that promise of all good, we live in the tension of this promise of a coming, complete, ultimate fulfillment of all good at Jesus' return. And so in this space, we acknowledge the tension 
and we groan in it. We, we groan in this place that we are. Uh, Romans 8, kind of 19 to 25, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subject, subjected it and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and for the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Here Paul gives us a, an almost Psalms-like passage. Right? There's this imagery and personification of all of creation as groaning. Right? Creation knows that it's not how it was designed to be. Paul's giving us a, a vision of a restored Genesis 3 world. And we know from Genesis that creation has been subjected to pain and suffering. And we talk about, about thorns, thistles, that will work by the sweat of our brow for our food, that there'll be pain in childbirth. And because of sin, all these things have happened. But one day, all of this will be restored to God's original vision. And so creation itself groans as it waits for its full restoration. It sits here in expectancy. It aches for things to be made right. It lives in the tension of the already and not yet. Right, verse 22 here speaks of the groaning as being like the pains of childbirth. Right, it's a pain that leads to new life. A baby comes and with it had new life and happiness. And the whole earth is groaning in the same way, waiting for the return of Jesus and its true restoration a new life and a new earth. But it's not only creation that's groaning. We ourselves as believers, we, we groan too. We, we ache in that same tension as all of creation. We are, as the passage says, awaiting adoption. And earlier in chapter 18, Paul talks about how we are adopted. Again, this is this, this idea of a partial completion. Right? We, we're adopted, but it's not yet complete. We're adopted, but we're not yet living in this new kingdom. In another of his letters, Paul uses some of the same, same language, uh, 2 Corinthians 5. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Paul continues some of this idea in Romans uh, 8, 26, 27. Likewise, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he searches hearts, knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Right, the Holy Spirit is working in us making us more aware of how the earth is not how it should be. Verse 26 says the, the spirit intercedes for us. And the word intercedes means to, to intervene on someone's behalf. The Holy Spirit who knows God's perfect will, knows the answer to these questions of suffering, 
He intervenes on our behalf. The Spirit knows the desires of our hearts and helps to align those with God's God's will and God's plans as we pray. The Spirit is working in us, empowering us to live discontented with the world and to groan as we, we wrestle with how to know and live God's will in this imperfect world. So how do we suffer well? We suffer well by living in the tension. Right, by, we, we suffer well by living in the tension. We acknowledge that God never promised us an easy and pain-free life. We know that we will struggle and deal with pains and suffering and, and disappointments. Right, we, can, we can struggle financially. We can struggle with pain and sickness and loss. We can grieve when we need to grieve. We can still feel anxious when we're overwhelmed. And as hard as it may feel to say, that's okay. We live in the tension. We live in the tension because we know that there is a bigger and better and ultimate and eternal good waiting for us. I I was reading a study this week on pain endurance. And uh, these researchers, they would have people come into a room. uh, They had a bucket of ice water. And they'd say, okay, uh, we're going to see how long you can stand in this bucket of ice water. And so people would, would step in and they'd sit there and kind of wait as long as they could. And then whenever they were tired or done or had felt like it was enough, they'd pop out. Uh, they would mark the times down. That was kind of their control. And so they, they wanted to see how long everyone could endure the freezing. They repeated the, the same experiment with one difference. Each participant got to have a friend in the room. The friend didn't do anything. They didn't say anything. They didn't help in any way. They were just present in the room. And so people would come in, they'd step into the bucket again, and they'd sit there freezing, freezing, and eventually go, this is enough, I'm out, and they'd get out of the ice bucket. And they found on average that with this friend in the room, not doing anything, just sitting there, just being present, that on average, the time somebody stayed in the bucket of ice water doubled. The researchers concluded that the the presence of a caring, caring individual doubled the amount of pain that an individual could endure. This is a great picture of the ministry of presence. When the people around us are suffering, we often want to give them answers. We want to give them the the reason that something's happening. We want to help give them that sense of control we talked about at the beginning. But oftentimes, we just need to be present with them, to sit in that tension with them, to acknowledge it together, to groan in pain and suffering alongside each other. And sometimes just sitting there with somebody, that, it feels almost useless. And it feels unproductive. And it feels like I, there should be something I can do. But our presence can actually be a gift to people facing the tension of an already not yet world. That's how we help others through suffering. By simply being present in their pain. And often I'm up here talking about small groups and group life and triads and how fun and exciting community is and how great it is to to gather together and to share a meal and to to discuss the word. And it's so much fun. And I love that part of community. But on the other hand, there's another reason that's important. There's all these great, fun, positive reasons. But also when you have community and a small group and a triad or whatever it is, you have people that are around you when you're suffering. You have people around you when you're, you're in pain that can just be present with you. 
So we suffer well by living in the tension. We groan in our trials and our suffering and our disappointments. But the second way that we suffer well it was remember that we have a God who suffers with us and who suffered for us. Jesus came as a baby. He endured pain, suffering, and the same groaning that we endure. He was nailed and executed on a cross to allow us to enter into that ultimate good that God has for us. And Jesus is, is not the source of no suffering, but he's the God who can relate to our suffering. Jesus is not the source of no suffering. He's the God who relates to our suffering. And one commentator on on this idea had this to say. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries, and I've stood respectfully before the statues of Buddha. His legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I've had to turn away. And in my imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, our world of tears and death, and he suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in light of his. There's still in our lives a, a question mark against human suffering, but over it, we boldly stamp another mark the cross that symbolizes divine suffering, the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in such a world as ours. The other gods were strong, but thou was weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. You can unwrap your communion. We'll take it together in a moment here. But it is through this act of communion that we remember that we have a God who can relate to our pain and relate to our suffering. And it's through communion that we remembered that we have a God who suffered with us. The death and the suffering of Jesus inform us that sin and evil are real. That's why Jesus had to die. Jesus endured the same pain and suffering we do. But the cross and communion also reminds us that God's love is real, which is why Jesus was willing to die. This bread, which symbolizes Jesus' body nailed to a cross. Let us take it together in remembrance of the pain and the suffering that he endured in remembrance of the God who suffered for us. And this cup, which is a a symbol of Jesus' blood, the blood that covers over our sins. It's the ultimate good coming out of the ultimate suffering. Let us take this cup together in remembrance of what Jesus has done for us.
God. We thank you that you are the God who suffered with us and you are the God who suffered for us. We thank you that we have a God who can relate to us in our pain, in our disappointments, in our trials, in the difficulties of our life. And God, we thank you that we can live in the tension. God, help us to keep our eyes focused on this ultimate good, the ultimate good of glory, the ultimate good of the kingdom of heaven, the ultimate good of a new earth and of restored bodies. And help us to know that that is the promise that you have for us. As we live here on this earth, God, help us to hold to that as the true promise of what's coming. Allow us to see more clearly your will and your presence when we're in times of struggle. And God, as we do struggle, bless us with great community and great support. As we together seek to live out the kingdom of heaven on this earth, as we seek to bring your holy name, the name of Jesus, into the communities around us here in Southwest Edmonton. Amen.